Hey friends, this is Hannah Wedger, an agriculture teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, and I'm here to talk all things agriculture education related. Curriculum, classroom management, FFA, career development events, SAEs, and whatever else you want to hear about. It's basically me sharing chapters of my book of agriculture with all of you. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest from the University of Minnesota, Brandon Reuger, to talk about whiteness. So let's dig in. Hey friends, I'm here today with Brandon Reuger. He's a Partnership Outreach Coordinator in Agriculture Education from the University of Minnesota. I've worked with him in various different ways. Specifically with our, or most recently, with the St. Paul Public Schools, he's um, helped start the Junior Manners chapter um, within our school district. Uh, He also facilitates the Beyond Dialogue group that I take part in, and he has helped with my poultry team in helping coach them. Um, So I'm going to let him kind of tell us about himself. Um, So Brandon, could you uh, introduce yourself or just kind of explain? Uh, talk about yourself a little bit and how you identify. Yes, absolutely. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, So my name is Brandon. Just a little bit about me. I'm originally from a small town in Minnesota called Sleepy Eye, about two hours southwest of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, I currently work at the University of Minnesota as Partnership Outreach Coordinator in the Agricultural Education Department. So what I like to tell people is I do a lot of work around creating access um, and I for students to come into the University of Minnesota in the College of Food, Agriculture, and Natural Resource Sciences. Um, I specifically work a lot creating access for underrepresented students, so I also advise for MANERS, which stands for Minorities in Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Related Sciences. Um, and as far as how I identify, um, I identify as white, I identify as cisgender, meaning I identify My gender identity matches my biological sex. Um, I identify as gay, which has certainly shaped a lot of my identity and those dominant identities I mentioned. Um, I identify as uh, Christian. I identify as uh, probably middle class. Um, I I think those identities are really important to share about just because they shape the context into which I view the world. And especially for this topic that we're about to have, I think um, it's important to know um, the places that I'm coming from. Thank you for sharing with us. Um, so when I first kind of asked Brandon if he would be interested in this, um, we were messaging back and forth and he said, let's talk about whiteness. And I was like, yes, this is going to be awesome. (laughs) And I think it's something that's really important. Um, not just for the agriculture education world, but for everyone. And so as I was thinking about recording this podcast, I'm like, this is, this is going to be really cool because I don't think it, I think it will work for everyone, whether you are in education or not. And so I think mm-hmm. it's something important that just needs to be talked about. Um, so maybe I think one of the questions that might be helpful to start with is what is whiteness? Yes, absolutely. So I guess before even answering that question, I, I want to also share that there's nothing that uniquely qualifies me for this conversation. Um, especially as someone who identifies as white too. Um, And by being a white person, talking about whiteness, I, in a lot of ways, reinforce whiteness Mm -hmm. in that that dominant identity. Um, So I just want to put that out there. Maybe the one thing that 
the reason why I want to talk about it is because I've done a lot of work deconstructing what race is and kind of reconstructing what white identity looks like in my life and what it can look like in the systems that I participate in. Sure. So anyway, what is whiteness, right? Uh, whiteness, um, I would say, is a, a system. Um, a lot of it is rooted in culture. And I think you can't really talk about whiteness without talking about racism, which is a loaded term for a lot of people. Um, but a lot of times when people think of racism, they think about it in an explicit way. So I'm going to call somebody... Um, a bad word that's targeted at their culture, right? Absolutely. That's what I think of. Right. Like, right. that's the first thing I think of. But um, there's a lot of different ways that racism can show up. So you can have institutional racism, systemic racism, interpersonal racism, which is kind of the example that a lot of people think of. Mm -hmm. um, you can have uh, internalized racism, too. Um, and so... Institu I think institutional and systemic racism is a lot of the conversation that we're not really having. And yeah. that's the ways that um, whiteness specifically is built into all of our systems, all of our institutions that we're doing. So when we think about education and how that shows up there, um, it's the dominant identity that's showing up in the classroom, showing up in teachers that mm -hmm. don't reflect the students. Um, um, the systems and just even how uh, specifically people of color are um, not um, what's the right word I'm looking for the way that people of color are operating within a system that's sure. not designed for them it's designed for white people because it was designed by white people absolutely and I just want to quick what you just the last thing that you just said was um, I this past year kind of realized something that our school systems really are were set up by white males and so then mm -hmm. thinking about how students that are not white um, fit into that school system is really interesting and just simple things like a bell system really you know doesn't work for some um, identities yeah. and so it's kind of interesting to just start kind of wrapping your mind around that yeah and one last point that I would share probably to what is whiteness actually two things that I would share about um, so there's a book called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Alou. Um, and they talk, the, one of the quotes from the book is, I don't want you to understand me better. I want you to understand yourselves. Your survival has never depended on the knowledge of white culture. In fact, it's required your ignorance. So as white people, we've never had to think about what our culture actually is. Mm -hmm. um, and so talking about whiteness is the first step to understand that and how that plays into the other cultures that we're interacting with, specifically with people of color who have um, their own cultures that we're coming from. Um, and then the, the second thing that I, I would mention too, um, and there's a lot of different things that I, when I think about, I can't talk about race or whiteness without talking about this or this or this or this. And one of those things I think about is trauma mm -hmm. um, and specifically the generational trauma that people have endured um, throughout 400 years in the American system, right? That goes all the way back to slavery um, 400 years ago. So I think that we need to also be talking about how has that gener that generational trauma endured throughout time? How do we see it show up today? Um, and really talk about that as well. That's great. Um, what might that look like, or what might whiteness look like in the education system? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I think one thing that I, I specifically think about right away and how whiteness shows up in the education system is 
um, thinking about school districts that have more predominantly students of color that are in them, and then thinking about the teachers that are um, teaching in those schools. And a lot of times those teachers represent dominant white identities, right? And so students of color don't have an opportunity to see teachers that look like them, um, who understand the shared experiences that they might have from those similar identities. Um, Another thing is just dominant narratives that show up in the classroom that we don't necessarily think about. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, in agricultural education, Uh, one of the alternative narratives that we don't often talk about is um, the contributions that people of color have made to agriculture over history or we just gloss over those things so um, thinking about specifically like we brought enslaved Africans to the United States to operate our agricultural and food systems Mm -hmm. um, and the ways in which our system is built on that, we need to address that. And it goes back to that trauma piece too. Um, A lot of, we're just trying to gloss over these different topics, but there's so much rooted in it um, that we need to address. Um, And I mean, other examples of that would be like indigenous contributions to agriculture too, specifically um, like we've, taken a lot of their land, Mm -hmm. stolen their land, um, the mass genocide that's occurred with indigenous people. Um, And again, it's just another piece of trauma that these different people groups have endured, but haven't been able, we haven't addressed those topics or we've, we've just glossed over it within education and specifically in agricultural education in a lot of ways. Um, I am going a little off script here, and I hope that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but how, as an agriculture teacher, you know, thinking about um, teaching that stuff makes me nervous and not quite sure how to address that. Do you have any, like, I don't know, tips or things that you should think about or agriculture teachers should think about when they are addressing these topics or teaching these topics? Yeah, I think that, yes, it's hard, yes, it's uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but I think we are maintaining the system if we don't talk about it, and I don't, I don't necessarily have any tips for how you can, how you or somebody else can address it in their classroom. I think that that's going to depend on the context of the classroom. What I will say is that we need to be willing to be uncomfortable about it. Um, and specifically students of color that I've worked with and obviously their experience is contextualized to their own experience and they don't represent all students of color but I have heard them say um, some of the students I've worked with like yeah we've just glossed over this you know Mm -hmm. in history class and then we've we learned it in another place anyway right yeah so um, and I think too another important piece of that is that if a white teacher specifically is going to be teaching about that then they also need to be listening other narr- to other narratives. They need to be researching other narratives to make sure that they're not coming again with that dominant narrative into right. it. Yeah. Um, because they're, I mean, we do teach about slavery in, hi- in history, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the way we teach it is glossing over it. <laughs> yeah. Or to say that like, that was in that time. That We no longer do that in, in, anymore. But in a lot of ways, that slavery has really... Um, adapted and into mm-hmm. a different type of slavery. Like thinking about agriculture, I mean, slavery adopted 
um, or excuse me, it adapted into um, like sharecropping, mm-hmm. um, adapted into like now what we see is um, convict labor in agriculture or we see immigration labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have that conversation about like, why is that still rooted in a lot of racism? Because in agriculture, we, uh, in a lot of senses, progressive, and I say quote unquote progressive, in immigration or these different different types of labor fields. But why why do we feel that way? Like what mm-hmm. is really at the root of that? And a lot of that is exploiting bodies, black and brown bodies, for um, a system that white people have colonized over the, mm-hmm. the history of time. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's I, a lot. But. It's a lot. It's a lot. But I think it's so it's so yeah. good, and it's just wrapping our heads around it. I think is so important, and just starting to think about it. Yeah. Um. What are some common myths when we are talking about whiteness? Um. So I think that one common myth definitely is um, that we live in a like post racial society. So. Barack Obama was elected president in 2008. Oh, you know, we've done all the work we can around race. We're, you know, we're good now. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that we are not in a post-racial society. And I think that we've seen that um, as time has gone on, that um, whiteness has continued to evolve. It's continued to adapt itself. It may not look like slavery in the 1600s to the 1800s, but it looks different, like it looks like um, immigration, immigrant labor on farms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or not necessarily even just immigrant laborers on farms, but how we view immigrant labor on farms as well. There's more that plays into it than just that. Um, sure. We can talk about colorblindness and how um, people say, uh, this is definitely a generational thing I would say, mm-hmm. but um, also continues to be passed down from generation to generation, specifically in rural communities. But the common narrative that I don't see color, so and everybody's equal to me. Well, if you don't see color and you identify as a person of color, then you don't see the full them because as a person of color, that has shaped a lot of their experience. And we need to be able to see that and recognize that and say, oh, I see the way that you've been navigating these systems Mm -hmm. and I empathize with that and how can I stand in solidarity with you as well? Mm -hmm. And as an educator, what can I do to continue to deconstruct systems for you to continue to stand in solidarity with you as well? Yeah. So I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable for a second. Yeah. Um, But when I originally did my interview for my job that I have now, I was asked the question... um, I don't remember exactly how it went, but it was something along the lines of, um, like, you're a white teacher, and how do you, or are you comfortable dealing with students of different colors or whatever it might be? And my exact response was, I I don't see color. I just, everybody's the same, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I... um, I don't know. I am happy that I have kind of come to this place where I'm doing some self-examination and realizing that it's really important to be able to to see, you know, people's different colors and realizing that there's a narrative behind that. Um, and Absolutely. that, like you said, that we are going to, you know, I'm a white person, but I would like to stand in solidarity with you or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, 
and just examining all of this I think is good so yeah and I think another piece that goes with that too that serves as a common myth um, is that we look to um, like black and brown bodies to figure out how we can stand in solidarity with them too Um, and so like as an educator like if I hadn't you know deconstructed and reconstructed my white identity and honestly still do this in a lot of ways that I don't realize that I'm doing it but I might like ask a question to a student like and really like look to them to advise me on how to do something mm-hmm. when in reality I could probably google it and find the same answer yeah right? yeah um and so there's this narrative that like if so if we do live in a, a society that is unjust towards people of different races or mm-hmm. racial and ethnic minorities specifically, then we have then those people are the ones that need to lead us into a more racially just society. Mm-hmm. Um, while we definitely should be looking to that, like while we definitely should be listening to their voice and empowering that voice and, and making sure that it's heard, we also should be looking to ourselves to to figure it out too so that we're not putting the burden on their backs yeah not you know putting all of the labor on black and brown bodies like we've done throughout history yeah right yeah it's it's again like this way that whiteness continues to evolve Mm -hmm. and adapt itself yeah i um I'm, again, going off script a little bit, but there was something um, in our Beyond Dialogue that kind of caught me, too, and you have it written down as well, but Mm -hmm. the idea that it's not my fault and therefore it's not my responsibility Mm. is, like, a huge myth. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the term whiteness, like, originally when I heard it, I was just kind of, like, defensive about it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not mean to people. I'm not, like specifically racist and so that idea that like um I don't know that it's it's not my fault I haven't been a bad person Mm -hmm. and I think that there's definitely that's kind of a common narrative that I've heard from other people before as well yeah absolutely um any other myths that you wanted to touch on Um, I think one um, myth, and this is one that I'm definitely um, also a part of too sometimes, is that we've arrived at a place of understanding in, so I talk about this, like, quote unquote, I'm I'm saying I talk about deconstructing and reconstructing my white identity. Um, And when I say reconstructing, it's like a continual verb. It's continually yeah. happening that I continually need to do it. And if I think that I've arrived at any point, then that's part of the problem of whiteness too, is that um, we're done. We're in this post-racial society, or at least I am in this post, post-racial moment, and therefore I don't need to worry about anything that I'm saying. Or, you know, mm-hmm. but in reality, the spaces that I show up to, the words that I'm using, they continue to have these effects and I continue to miss what they are Mm -hmm. even if they are in very implicit ways and so therefore I need to continue to examine it and I need to continue to learn about it like I there is at no point where I am not continuing to reconstruct what whiteness looks like Mm -hmm. in my life great uh okay so I'm all about being able to kind of give people something to work on and something to mm-hmm. be able to use. Um, and so the question that I have are, what are some strategies to help teachers unpack color, unpack color blindness? 
Yeah. And I, I think also another thing with this too is tools and resources are really great. And I also can't necessarily tell somebody what's going to work for them in their context yeah. and their experience. So I, the first tool and resource that I would recommend is to listen to different people, whether that's by following um, um, specifically activists of racial justice, I would say on social media, reading different books. Like I know that you've done a lot of reading mm-hmm. um, to kind of figure some of that stuff out, um, listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I think that is the number one step that has been helpful for me um, before thinking about how I show up in my workspace, how I show up working with youth and young people. Um, is listening first. That is the number one thing, whether that's by podcast, reading, whatever, mm-hmm. to people on social media. Um, listen, listen, listen. Um, another thing, I mean, specifically that I think of, um, that I thought of anyway when working with students, um, specifically students of racial and ethnic minorities, is if, if I am responding to a, a student in a certain way, would I respond the same way if they were white, whether that's in a positive reinforcement manner, whether it's disciplinary type action, would I respond to that student the same way if they were white? And then if I, in my head, I say, yeah, I would respond the same way. But Brandon, would you really respond (laughs) in the same way if they were right, if they were white? Mm -hmm. And then again, if I'm still saying yes, continuing to examine that, coming back to that again Mm -hmm. later, that situation and reflecting on it, would that really be the same scenario? Mm-hmm. Um, or if I think about another friend that I might have who's ha- has kind of gone is at a similar point in their journey of understanding their identity as I am, whether that's a white person or somebody um, that I'm close to as like a person of color that might be somebody who I'm able to have these more vulnerable conversations with. What would they say in response to that situation? Not yeah. that I necessarily need to ask them and put the burden on them. Specifically, again, going back to that, like putting the burden on people of color to figure these things out for, for us. But if I was in their shoes or if they were in the room with, what would they say at the yeah. same time, right? Mm-hmm. And so can, that continual like self-reflection and examination, like what, what are the factors in that situation that affected it? And how do they relate to a student's racial identity? And then also, so that, I mean, that is in response to a student of color, right? But also thinking about when I'm working with white students, what would the difference be if this was a student of color too? Because a lot of times as white people, we like to think about it in terms of the student of racial and ethnic minority, like how do we work with them? Mm -hmm. But also how do we work with the dominant identity student and flip the narrative again so Mm -hmm. that it's, it's not always about putting it on, you know, putting Mm -hmm. that, um, labor on the black and brown person but it's about okay how how do we switch this narrative a little bit Mm -hmm. um so you talked a little bit about this but I don't know if you have any specifics so what support and or resources are available for um our listeners or like specifics that you have that we should dig into yeah and I actually so um a couple months ago, for um, we have this webinar series called Ag Ed for All. We're exploring different social identity-related um, topics. And one of them we did was race, racism, and privilege. And I have 
um, kind of a slide deck of a bunch of different resources that people can explore. So maybe that's something I could share with you that you could link in the podcast. Yeah, listeners, absolutely. Um, but one book that has been really transformative for me, and that I literally carry it with me everywhere, <laughs> um, is he has called it sitting on the desk yes, right now. <laughs> I have it sitting on my desk right now because I'm like, oh, if I got to reference something, I'm just gonna look through this book. Um, it's called My Grandmother's Hands, and it's specifically about racialized trauma. Um, in white bodies, black bodies, and police bodies as well. Um, And it's written by a North Minneapolis author. And for those listeners who don't know, North Minneapolis has been a historically segregated, continually under-resourced community in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. um, and suffers um, a lot of um, negative effects as a result of that. Um, So the author, he was a social worker um, from North Minneapolis and basically just like talks about how does our body receive whiteness, how does our body receive, um, or white body supremacy is actually what he calls it. So a lot of times we hear white supremacy, but how do we talk about white body supremacy? Um, because our bodies typically receive it before our brain does actually Mm, that's so interesting yeah yeah it's been very like I've done I feel like I've done a lot of deconstructing and then when I when I talk about like there's so much more I have to learn I like look at this and I'm like wow this is like I wish I were where I would have started because it's so so good it's just so good so I cannot I cannot recommend that book enough um so I'm gonna put you on the spot again yeah yeah I've been doing that a lot today um is there any like piece that you want to share from the book or anything Um, that you otherwise we could do a small bonus episode if you don't want to know yeah yes absolutely (laughs) I'm here for that yes I think like a conversation about not um not just like talking about like whiteness but also like how does our body physiologically receive whiteness is really interesting so I would love an extra okay. conversation that. Um, another podcast that I would recommend uh, that was very foundational for me, and again, something that I read, I would say, kind of later in my journey, is called Seeing White. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's by Seen on Radio, and I think the host's name is John B. Wynn. And okay. he's from Minnesota as well, actually. All um, Minnesota people. I know, right? <laughs> Um, but he basically goes, he's a white person as well. And he goes through, um, just like his own identity development, kind of some of the history of whiteness, how we see it in the United States. Um, he contextualizes it a bit to Minnesota. Now he lives in North Carolina, I think. So he also does some stuff there, Great. but it's a really, really good foundational podcast. Um, and then there's people on social media that I follow, um, Rachel Cargill is one good one. Ibram Kendi, who is an anti-racist scholar um, in, I think, Washington, D.C. And he, ha- he has a book called Stamp from Beginning, which is um, about the history of racist ideas in America. And then he just released another book called um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, I think it's called. I haven't <laughs> read it. but um, And then Andre Henry, who, as someone who identifies as a Christian, um, he has been a really instrumental person in kind of talking about like faith and racial justice as well. And another good person at that is Austin Channing Brown, who um, is a woman. And she actually is just about to start uh, in a, like an online talk show called The Next Question, where she has specific conversations about race and interviews different people. Kind of like a podcast, but yeah. like, you know, <laughs> talk show, like TV, like we yeah. used to do. <laughs> 
and then is there let's see oh there's some more questions that we haven't covered any specific road roadblocks that we should watch out for when we're talking about whiteness yeah um i think i shared a little bit about like the idea of centering whiteness in a situation and what i mean by that i'll share a little bit more there's this book called white fragility by dr robin d'angelo um who is a, a scholar around white racial identity development. And um, she, has, she has a book called White Fragility. And essentially, white fragility is the way in which we respond to conversations about whiteness, race, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, <clears throat> one thing with white fragility... Um, I actually kind of relate it back to something Martin Luther King talked about previously. And he talks about um, how the white moderate and the white progressive in a lot of ways is more dangerous than the Ku Klux Klan member during his time era, um, which is really interesting. But when he talks about it, he talks about how they have the power to say something to disrupt it. but they don't and therefore they maintain this racial hierarchy um, and I think that is still so true today mm-hmm. that is absolutely still so true today and so thinking about that in terms of white fragility I feel like that is a case in point example of that because then when we are challenged by something racially that we've said um, we exhibit this sense of white fragility which is basically defensiveness that yeah. oh I th- that doesn't apply to me. That that was not me. That was not my intention. Yes. When maybe it was not your intention, but it was your impact, mm-hmm. and that's something that we need to own in that fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you talked a little bit about it's not our fault, but it is our mm-hmm. responsibility. And a lot of people can get caught up in the... Um, this is kind of an, an advancement of white fragility beyond the defensiveness. Um, what I've heard to be called as white tears. Um mm where we get caught in this like guilt and emotion of like oh I can't believe this is like what we did and we get so stuck in the emotion that we don't get to the action piece of it mm. and therefore a lot of times what ends up happening is again we center this white whiteness and uh, um, people of color are consoling us and saying like this is okay or even that turn like that fr- that quote I feel like I don't actually know where it comes from but I I would not doubt if it came from communities of color saying it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Like that in and of itself is consoling white bodies. Mm-hmm. I feel like yeah, um, to bring us to this point <laughs> yeah. where like, okay, now actually do something. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think that is definitely a roadblock that we need to watch out for is sure. that um, if I'm challenged on something that I need to actually listen to it and not exhibit this defensiveness or white fragility in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Is there anything else I um, didn't ask, but I should have? Um, well, we're going to have this, this next conversation about racialized <laughs> trauma and bodies, right? Yeah. Look out for a bonus episode. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. I think there's honestly a lot of things that we could have talked more about yeah. and expanded more on. But one of the biggest things that I would just say is that listening to one podcast about it following one person reading one book 
or even reading 10 books or following 10 people, specifically for white people, um, that does not mean that we have arrived. And I said that earlier, and I'm, I'm just going to reinforce that again. Mm-hmm. Um, ju- doing the work means that we have to continue to do the work yeah. to, to do that. Um, and then the last thing I think I would also note, too, is that a lot of like what I've said is clearly targeted towards white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to name that and yeah, be cognizant of that as well. Yeah. And hopefully if there are people of color um, who are listening to this podcast that they have some more insight as to like how a white person has, you know, gone about this deconstruction and reconstruction of white identity um, or they, maybe they feel seen in some way. So I, I just want to name that as yeah. definitely a factor that this this conversation in a lot of ways still reinforces whiteness and yeah. it's you know it's what's happening but I want I hope that those people feel seen in some way too and are able to um, learn something as well yeah thanks for thanks for pointing that out yeah um, all right so we're gonna wrap up a little bit um, I am honestly stealing this from another podcast because I love it. <laughs> Um, but just so that the viewers can get to know you just a little bit more on a personal level, um, what is your um, favorite hometown restaurant and your go-to order there? Yes, this is one that I recently found, so <laughs> I'm going to share it. Um, it's actually in North Minneapolis, which I mentioned earlier, yeah. um, called Breaking Bread Cafe. And they are actually essentially like a social enterprise of a nonprofit called Appetite for Change, okay. which does a lot of work in urban agriculture and youth development. Um, so it's super relatable. Um, <laughs> yeah. And my favorite order there is uh, definitely their fried chicken and mac and cheese. Mm. Yeah. So, sounds like I might have to head there afterwards. Yes, absolutely. Um, who has had the most influence on your career in youth work? Or what? Yeah. Um, I think of several different areas, so it's hard to definitely pinpoint it to just one. I think one that was really instrumental for me, um, after I graduated from college, I did a year of substitute teaching, and then I worked for three months for the Boys and Girls Club of the Twin Cities at a high school, Patrick Henry High School, um, in North Minneapolis, and um, just like the different things that I learned from those students in that three months, was so instrumental in how I viewed youth work and recognizing the resilience of young people, the knowledge and capacity of young people. Um, it was so transformative to me in only three months um, mm-hmm. to be able to see that. And then I also think of a couple friends that have been really helpful for me. Um, and specifically thinking, I mean, just going back to the topic of the podcast, whiteness in youth work too. Um, my friend Harley Brown, who's originally from my hometown, has shout been, out to Harley. Yeah, shout out to Harley. Um, she uh, she's originally from my hometown. She's a few years younger than me, but she's and she's a white person as well. And um, somebody that I've been able to have like really good conversations with, tough conversations with, um, and I would say that we're able to challenge each other in deeper ways. Um, specifically around whiteness and also how that shows up in youth work in education and agriculture in agricultural education so she's definitely been very formative for me three years younger than me and like 
20 years more mature than me. <laughs> yeah. And I know Harley as well. Um, not as well as Brandon does, but she is fabulous. And I hope to have her on the podcast soon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and then what are uh, three of your simple pleasures? And I stole this from the Journey Women podcast because I thought it was so cool to be able to get to know um, her guests a little bit better. And so I'm like, I'm going to steal that and put it on my podcast. So three of your simple pr- pleasures. Yes. Um, first one, uh, the Walmart in Roseville has a bakery section where they have a bunch of little pies and I love to get their 50 cent little pumpkin pies. Like I I will go to the Aldi next to Walmart to get groceries and then I will specifically stop at Walmart to get the little pumpkin pie. Yes. So that's definitely one. Um, I love Harry Potter. Uh, Read all the books, seen all the movies. I have seen all the movies. Um, and then my third one, and anybody that knows me well will really know that this is a passion of mine. It's a simple pleasure, but also a passion. <laughs> Go for women's volleyball. Like, I could just sit in a game, and I would be set for that entire day. It'll change my mood in an instant. That's awesome. <laughs> That's super awesome. Um, well, thank you for being on here today. Can you just let our audience know how to um, get a hold of you if they want or follow you, all that good stuff? Yeah, so I, um, if you Google Brandon Reger, University of Minnesota, you can find my email pretty easily mm-hmm. um, if you're interested in talking more about these topics. Um, my uh, social media Instagram is at B Reuger, R O I G E R. My Twitter is at Brandon Reger. And I also have a website. I'm not super active on it, but I'm working on it a little bit to um, kind of talk a little bit more about some of these topics. But sure. my website is brandonreiger.com right now. So Perfect. Well, thanks for joining me today. Yes, thanks for having me. You just finished listening to episode two of Ag with Miss Wedger, where I'm sharing chapters of my book of agriculture with each of you. I hope you enjoyed listening and learned a little bit more about whiteness in the education system. For show notes, uh, please visit my Instagram at Miss Wedger, M-R-S-W-E-D-G-E-R, for more info about our chat today. I'm hoping to um, get a blog up so that I can have more of this info, but for right now, we're just going with my Instagram. Um, if you have any questions or on today's topic or ideas on topics you want me to dig in and cover, or if you want to be a guest on my podcast, you can send me an email at egg with Miss Wedger at gmail.com. So A G W I T H M S W E D G E R at gmail.com. I hope you have a great week and we will talk to you soon. Bye bye, everybody.